Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, how you doing, Pittsburgh? Sounded a little like good morning Vietnam there for a second. I got Jean Marie Laskus with us, which is only good. Uh, Jean Marie is the uh, celebrated author, she who broke the NFL. She, well, come on. If there's a, if they have an enemies list, you're on it, babe. <coughs> with her uh, book called Concussion, and made into uh, a movie, as you know. Uh, Will Smith. Did you like him? Oh, I loved him. Even though he's supposed to be wacky religiously and stuff? I, uh, he's such a such a good soul, I will say. You can't not like him in person. Really? He's, yeah. that, he's that charming? He's charming. He's kind. Mm-hmm. He's so funny and yeah. talented. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he like, is. like gracious to everyone. Like, you know what I mean? Good guy. He's good guy. Good guy. Liked Will. What is it? He's a Scientologist. Is it Scientology? I think so. It's 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 something, it's something. that we're not used to. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those. Oh yeah. Well, she's back to it. She's at it again. This is the book. Well, this is not the book, but it will be coming out kinda. This isn't quite right. This Would you rather hold up yours? Well, no. I mean, these are more. galleys of the book. The book comes out September the 18th. The real version. Okay. This is the book. It's called To Obama. With love, joy, anger, and hope. To Obama, letters written to the President of the United States. They come in at a rate of how many oh a day? Oh my gosh, thousands and thousands and thousands. A couple million a year. And Any answers I want to say? We got answers. And the book, we yes, is about the fact of this extraordinary machinery that uh, the Obama White House uh, created to get to the president's uh, attention 10 letters a day, that 10 of the thousands that had come in every day for him to read before he went to bed. I don't know how he could sleep. They're pretty heart-wrenching. They are. I mean, it's just something else. So I don't even know where where to start here. First, Obama, this started because of an article you had written for the New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine. Barack Obama read that. Barack Obama loved it. And we know this because he wrote to you. He sent a really nice note. A really nice note. He did, and and I think one of the things that he responded to, I know one of the things that he responded to is, um, it's really a story about the machinery of the staff that are these kind of like loyal soldiers, um, who you know he always knew they were there, but to really see the kind of like the the workings of the place, the heart, mm-hmm. the devotion, the devotion, the heart, the empathy. But and it, and it's not devotion to him, although it is. But it's really devotion to the the letter writers. It's like their mission was to elevate these voices, the voices that don't get heard. The letters being from we the people. Right. Anybody right. could and write to the president. Right. And um, and people did, <clears throat> mind oh you. My. Let me just back up. That was my first surprise. Like, who writes to the president? Like, didn't you think that? 
Like, why bother? Yeah, it'd be like writing to Santa Claus. Yeah, well, uh, yes, close. I, I was surprised. I mean, I mean, the president is there, but you don't expect. You, Would you the, think to yourself, no. hey, I'm going to tell Barack Obama <laughs> about my 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 kidney problem? Yeah. I mean, you know, people really wrote to him, and it's not just the the letters so often were not, you know, I'm howling about some policy. They were personal. Very they personal. Write to them in these their moments of desperation. A child commits suicide. The father's grieving. And he thinks to tell, tell the, president, the president. And not complain to the president. Just, you I should know you. this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the relationship that people had with, their, the, with that president was the whole story. Well, it's like they looked at him almost as the father. Yeah. The... Yeah, an awful lot of people did. An awful lot. <laughs> that that yeah. that's the feeling you got like a kind, good, wise, caring father. And I think a lot of them were surprised many people would exper- express this. They were f- surprised to find that they thought that. Some of them hadn't even voted for him. I mean, some of them were not they didn't identify as conservative or, you know, liberal or uh, by party. Some of them just um, needed to tell him stuff. And in a lot of those kinds of letters that were in an, an hour of need, a lot of those people were surprised that they had that, found to, that they had that relationship with him. Here is a letter. I'm just going to read this paragraph, or maybe you should. No, you should. Um, this is from a 21-year-old college senior at East Stroudsburg University, Pennsylvania. And she wrote this, and she's going to be a teacher. She says, and the, she wrote it, printing it with, su- I mean, it's such good penmanship. It's beautiful. It's yeah. just gorgeous. And it's a long, it's long, one, two, three, four pages. And she thinks, she thinks the president's going to read that? Come on. And I'm just going to read the, like, fifth paragraph. Dear Mr. President, throughout my life, my father has always been positive about everything. He works incredibly hard and is very good at what he does. But since he has been out of work for so long, I can see a marked change. It is mainly in his eyes. They seem much more sullen. He doesn't laugh nearly as much. He seems smaller somehow. I can tell by the way he acts that he fears that he feels he responsible for all of our current worries. Will my mom have enough gas to make it to work? Which car will break down this week that he'll need to fix? Out of all of the important bills, which is most important to be paid first? How long until his benefits run out? What if one of us gets sick? What groceries will be able to will be able to afford this week? Will we have a pension? I the list goes on and on. Okay, that's just one paragraph. Yeah, that's a that's from the heart, isn't it? Let's remember that when Barack Obama took over, he was given, as so often is the case by the Republicans, a country in distress, potentially heading into a depression. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. People losing their homes, their jobs. I mean, it was, do you remember? Yeah. And so he got these letters of that just rip your heart apart a lot of a lot of those early letters uh, you know really are 
howling, you know, um, we structure that kind of like early, so that you walk through the... It's like a history. You see, it's Mm -hmm. a history from from the ground up. Right. Um, So you hear those voices. Yeah, I forgot about 2008, 2009, what kind of mess we were in. And these people, you know, a guy writing, you know, his car dealership just folded. You know, just business after business collapsing. Um, people losing their homes. Yep. People, you know, the, the just the lack of faith in institutions that takes over during this period of time. Really, uh, you know, it's like, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And, of course, he righted the ship. Mm-hmm. And then it went back to the Republicans who are going to turn over who knows what to the next president. I won't get political here. You interviewed him uh, when he had how many weeks left in his presidency? Because you came in. This story came out in the New York Times, what, like um, (laughs) a Inauguration Day. On Inauguration Day. (laughs) So when we... Are you kidding? (laughs) So when... So when I interviewed Trump's him, Trump's inauguration day, <clears throat> this comes out, mm-hmm. giving people a remembrance of what they had lost. Listen, when I was doing the research for this, if you re- hearken back not that long ago, we did not, we all thought Hillary was coming in. Yes. So it, even my sense of the, how vitally kind of important this history was. <laughs> When Even you were, my sense of it when I was when you were writing it, it, it wasn't. No, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's kind of they're closing up yeah. one shop and the new one's coming in. They're turning but, it over to Hillary. You know, and yeah. then boom, yeah. he wins. Um, so I interviewed him um, a couple times. But but, the, but it was before the election. Mm-hmm. Before Trump was elected, mm-hmm. you interviewed mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have a lot of time left. No, gosh, it was October, I believe. Okay, so he, yeah. He was pretty much lame duck. Um, and I remember in the article, you're, <laughs> the one thing that struck you about him uh, and then struck you again when you interviewed him post-presidency is that... No, wait, a lot of things. Which, which did I he say? He talks oh, oh. <laughs> very deliberately, very... Slowly. Is it really that it pronounced? Is, it is so slow. You can't believe it. Okay. And I will put it this way. All right. I, sometimes I have, a lot of times I have people help me with transcribing tapes. And usually when you're, tra- anybody who's ever transcribed a tape, you have to slow it down to get. You the, want him to speed up? No, they, they tell me that that's the only time we ever had to speed tapes up. <laughs> it's like, come ah. It's very slow and deliberate and not a word that is not precisely fitting there. Wow. It's just like thinking it through before he says it and lots of thoughts going on. And then, you know, so at the time, like, you'd be frustrated. You'd be like... I would be wanting to finish his sentence. Yeah, fill it in, right? Did mm-hmm. that happen to you at all? Well, a little you're bit. You're a better it's listener than me. It's challenging. <laughs> because you don't want to... Interrupt the president. It's like, yeah, I kind of know we, where you're going. And rip it up. Because I have like 15 more questions here that we're never going to get to at this rate, which we don't. Um, but no, no but what, what's interesting is then when you listen to it afterwards, yeah. it's packed. It's packed with thought. 
It's really it like it's like I told it's like you put water into water into a sponge and it expands. He's an academic. I mean, really, he's a professor mode. Yeah, so if you're used to that. Yeah, but not you're not getting lectured at. It's not like that, and it's not like he's um. He's careful. Careful, yeah. It's not like you know a mansplainer, who's like I'm not gonna be care that you're sitting there listening. No, no, no. It's like I'm going to get this right. Because it's important to me, my thoughts are important to me, and they're important to you because you're here listening. Right. There's a little Mr. Rogers going on with him, I'm telling you. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you saw him again, post-presidency, at his offices in Chicago. Where? Excuse me, no. Washington. Oh, Washington. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. He's there. <clears throat> and... uh he was the same or much more relaxed? Oh, way more relaxed. Really? More relaxed. There was just a sense in his what? His body? Oh, his yeah. Body, yeah. Smiling and, <laughs> um, I mean, still slow speaker and pensive, but, um, you know, I think he had, remember those images of him um, on jet skis and stuff like that? You got the sense like this is a man who had a vacation. Yee-haw! That's, yeah. You know. Free at last. And the weight of all of that, I mean. But imagine how it weighs on him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine. Clearly, clearly, clearly. Oh, dear God. So, okay. Let's get, oh, here, I'm going to, here, there's, here's a slow thing he said to you on the second interview. I just. A slow thing he said to you. <laughs> you say, I, the future. He said, I have to be careful not sounding as if I'm Pollyanna-ish about the future. Because that did start driving me crazy about him. Because Pollyanna-ish doesn't work in Donald Trump's America. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to, anybody who says, oh, everything will be all right, you want to, like, shake them. Mm-hmm. So you say the future. I hadn't said the word out loud, but it was, of course, the elephant in the room. And... You're wondering, did he feel responsible in some way for where we are? And he says this. This is Barack Obama. I'll do it faster than he did. A better future is earned. It's hard work. And democracy in a country this big with such a diverse population is especially hard and complicated. And there are times in our history where we've had bad ugly stretches and so it's important not to ever forget and to recognize that the ideals and the best version of America is not preordained in other words work he said that on leaving as well it's you know it's all just on paper it mm-hmm. it'll mm-hmm. get can in like paper it is perishable it's us who mm-hmm. have to keep it and we didn't we effed up so mm-hmm. isn't that he yeah he it's just very said, powerful i mean and he meant that i mean that was that was like shooting daggers right i'm in my eyes um and it it's like you know get to work everybody Okay, we're going to get to the letters in a second but i just have i was shocked when in the book i saw that you walked back into the White House the day after mm. the election? Mm. I didn't know you'd been there 
the day after the morning, the morning after Trump won, <laughs> you walk back into Obama's we had set up. We had set it up. It was going to be this celebration. Oh, my God. We were going to all read the mail, the email coming in from the millions of people writing in to congratulate the new, the first woman president following the first black president. It was, it was going to be such an amazing historical moment. Of course I was going to be there. So, yeah, we had it all set up. So I was in Washington alone in a hotel during the night, you know, during the night. I was um, alone too. I couldn't bear to be with anybody. And I knew I had to go there yeah. in the morning. And I, you know, I'm watching. I'm thinking, oh my, oh, maybe I shouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? Oh, oh, well, as one would expect, were people? Well, I mean, there. You know, remember the shock? It was shock. It, it was almost people like were... everybody can remember how they were that morning. And like the first person you talk to, the first, like, and you want, like, I wanted to talk to my my people. Like, I was lonely. Like. You know? Yeah, you needed to talk. Yeah. To commiserate. To, yeah. yeah, and to, so that I had them. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, I knew them, but you didn't, you know. And Fiona, the main character really in the whole book, I was the first person she saw, and she was the first person I saw, and we just stared at each other. It was really hard to find the ability to speak. It was hard. Tell us about Fiona. Oh, my gosh, Fiona. Fiona, Fiona's like the, the star of the show here. Um, they told me about her, like the male, you know, the the woman who runs the mail room. When you asked to do the story mm -hmm. for the they and, said, at the White House, well, you got to get by Fiona. And I'm like, okay, can you can yeah. you leave me to Fiona? They're like, you don't know Fiona. I'm like, oh, so she ran ran that shop, and um. She was so devoted to these letter writers. She still is to this day. Yeah. Um, and, and the team that she put together of people whose job it was, whose job it was to elevate these voices, to give megaphones to these people who were just crying out in the wind. I mean, that was her purpose. And she never let it not, I mean, it was, it was like a, a mission, and they all had it. And she's the one who ultimately whittled down. all the, the f At the end of each day, people would sort of, like, they called it sampling. Um, you know, you'd have tons of interns reading mail, reading mail, reading mail, reading mail. Every piece of mail gets read every day, an email, and, and, and anyone could decide, hey, the president maybe should see this, see this one. one. Anyone could throw it into the sample pile, anyone. Um, and Fiona would take those at the end of the day, all of those, as like, and read them all, the ones that had been culled through, and decide, okay, no, the president should read these ten. Not only these are the ten he should read, but what but order? But this is the order he should read them in, and that was really key because she was, <laughs> she wanted him, she wanted them to be represented accurately to the president, in this order, not that order. You know, it was like putting together like like mixtapes or, or an album or, or a poem. A, a, or a snap, beautiful snapshot of the country he governs. Here's what it looks like today. today. Mm -hmm. And it may be, you know, it wasn't about issues necessarily. Could be. Yeah. But, you know, people are not writing in in categories. People were just writing in. And she wanted him to, to experience it the way that was true. 
they were sorted though into categories um, at some point. Wasn't there a category? Who was the poor guy who had the category of like tragic? Mm -hmm. Well, everybody had a portfolio. So that, well, first they come in randomly, you know. It comes in as a stack of opened, x-rayed, sniffed, all that stuff. So then it comes to the White House already opened. With With the envelope stapled on the back and just boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And teams of interns and volunteers, lots of volunteers, who had been there for some many administrations. That's a whole other interesting world. Right, right. Um, and they would just, you had to read. You just, I sat I down and read. You did too. And you just go through and you categorize each one. So this person's writing writing about Iraq. This person's writing about um, healthcare. Right. And you categorize them with a little, put it in the corner and pencil. But if it's a letter that moved you somehow emotionally, it didn't even matter how, you th- could throw it in the sample pile. Anybody could sample anything. It would cause me a lot of stress. Because in the beginning, I'm like, well, oh. this should, yeah. Yeah, okay, I think the president should read this this guy who, who who's suffering from opioid addiction. It's a poor guy, and it's a well-written letter, and he should read this. And then I'm like, yeah, but what's it going to do if he reads it? Like, do they have to write, like, a policy response or something? You know, statistics have to be added up to get it. I, I, uh, it's very fraught. Yeah, and then you felt responsible, like. So it's not unusual for these people who are reading all the letters that Americans send to the president to have to get up and leave. Oh, you had to take, people had to take breaks. People had to, they had counseling available if you wanted it. It's the only shop in the White House that had that. Because you're getting, no, you're getting letters. Sometimes you're opening, this one woman told me she's opening and it was some mother writing about a shooting, you know, a drive-by shooting in her neighborhood opens it up, and there are the photos of her children shot. You know, and, and, and she's just saying, I wanted you to see my son. You know, three of them, actually, in that oh. case. Um, so that's an so intern. I mean, that is a college intern saying, oh, this is a lot going so on this, with Mel. So th- this was a life-changing job for every single person who worked there, without without question. And many of them, you know, because they're all so-called political appointees, you know, you only you only come in during one administration and then you're out, you know? Yeah. Um, so they all knew they were leaving one way or the other, but most of them, and they all started so young. Fiona was just out of college when she started there. They all started just either as interns or right out of college. They often had worked on Obama's campaign. Many had worked on the campaign. Volunteers on the campaign. Knocked on doors, that yeah, kind of thing. that kind of thing. And then okay. came through and got jobs. And thinking, you know, I'm going to work in the mail. Like anybody. Yep, okay, you're in the mail room. You know, you think, oh, great. That was a really great <laughs> job. Can't wait to tell all my friends I'm in the mail room. You know, at first. And then within such a short time, it's like, wait, this is like the most important place you could be. Like you are having the front seat of what America is saying every day that most people don't hear. These letters could then drive policy decisions what you end up learning in the book and they do and they do what you end up learning in the book is um the ways that the speechwriters use the letters for example that was fodder for speeches constantly well i think i was surprised when it said that when obama would get these letters there were some that he said i want this circulated or did they circulate to his 
senior staff before he read them, or they would go to him first. Go to him first, and then he would he would start passing. Them he around. would tell like his cabinet and other people, "You got to see this." Yeah, oh, yeah. Read it, read it, read and it, read not it. only do you have to see this, but I want to report on what, it, what what's going on with this person. I want to find out what happens. I want to know why, you know, why his 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 health insurance premiums are this high. This is ridiculous. What's going on out there? You know that kind of stuff. Amazing. This is like incredible. Like the there was one letter what that he had framed and stuck on a wall that he still has framed at his new office. Yes, Natoma Canfield. She's in here. Natoma Canfield. She was a uh, cancer survivor um, early on, 2009 letter, and um, a moving letter like so many of them, um, but really spoke to him I think because it reminded him of his his mother. Right. Um, anyway, he hung that up, and it right in, right outside the Oval Office as you walk in. That would stay there. It was kind of like his reminder of, of why like he why had to help people get affordable health care. Mm-hmm. And he still has it in his new office, yeah. I noticed. Well, the book, what Gene was able to do, of course, was find some of the more compelling letters. <laughs> that whittles it down to only about $3 million. And, um, and then find the people who wrote them. Yeah, let me just add to your thought there. The hard part was which t- to exclude. I the letter. I mean, it's so hard. Be. I mean, every I have stacks and stacks and stacks. I bet they're just so beautiful. I mean, I. But yes, then I went off and and met, um, you that, know, I mean, talked so with a bunch of the letter writers and, um, you know, the question: Why did you do this? What were you thinking? So the people you. Talked. Can we talk about Marge McKinney? I particularly thought she was wondrous. I wish I brought her picture. Uh, I have photos of these folks. You We're do. We're going to do them on the website, yeah. She, you'd love her when you saw her picture, Will the photos be, ever be in the book? Not no. in the book, but no. um, we'll have like a web version. And okay, okay. So here's a woman, Marge McKinney, what, she's in her 70s or mm-hmm, something? Mm-hmm. She wrote the Do you want to read it? Up. Or at least a paragraph or two from it. But while you're looking, yeah, she... Where um, are we going to find it? Uh, I think she's a chapter, isn't she? So she's she's in the table of contents. Okay. Chapter um, 10. Chapter 10. So Marjorie, or Marge, we call her. Um, yeah. I'm getting it. Are you okay. getting it? Chapter. I'm getting it. <laughs> Marge McKinney. Oh, I'm only at eight. She, How you doing? She, I'm good. I'm getting Ten. It. I got it. Here you are. Okay, there's Marjorie. Okay. Uh, where's the letter? Here. Which paragraph? Let's read. Well, I don't know. Read it all. All right, dear President Barack Obama, this is written um, in 2013. Dear President Obama, thank you for your recent statements after the Zimmerman trial about your own memories of being a young black male. I am a white American, born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, where I lived until I moved to North Carolina as a grad student. When I left Alabama, I had the opportunity to know many different people and was impelled to examine the racism in me. I didn't know it existed. I didn't even think about it before. As years went by, I thought I had done a pretty good job of shedding the racism in me. I had African-American friends Two of my children are biracial. I was involved in civil rights issues. Then came a cold evening in Albany, New York. 
I was in Albany for a short visit and was walking in the area between the museum and government buildings. It's a huge plaza with an underground pedestrian area that links the buildings. I'd used that to walk to the museum but declined to walk back outside. It was getting dark. The only other person on the plaza was a young black man who was walking parallel to me on the other side. As I pulled a scarf around my neck to cut the wind, I saw the man pull his hoodie up as he changed direction and began walking toward me. Much to my horror, I became afraid and tried to figure out why. Into my mind popped the notion that he was a black man, had hidden his face, I had too, and had suddenly changed direction when he seemed to have looked up and seen me. I was embarrassed to think that, but it was there. I decided to wait and see what happened, fearful all the time. I changed my direction a bit, and he seemed to as well. He continued to come directly toward me. As he came near me, he looked up and said, Bad wind, isn't it? And showed me the nearest entry into the pedestrian underground. He was as cold as I was, and his change of direction was to get into the building close to where I walked. I wish I could have apologized to that fellow. That experience stays with me. I hope that others who heard your words will be more aware of the fear that lurks within many of us. It's unreasoned, but there. I hope to never forget my walk in Albany and the young man I encountered that cold day. Your candid comments last week meant a lot to me. Thank you. Sincerely, Marjorie McKinney. The president responded to her. Marjorie, thanks for your thoughtful letter. Your story is an example of what makes me optimistic about this country. Barack Obama. That's an ex example of an exchange. And more of the story is that she went on trying to exorcise to make her these, uh, you know, demons to make things better and ends up founding a chapter of the NAACP in Boone, North Carolina. She discovered there wasn't one. In, in the entire home. county, there was not one. So she thought, okay, I guess I better do it. And she, yeah. And she did it. So she's well into her 70s now yeah, and still hard at work. That sense that a person can change yeah. and, and, is and what he believes in and yeah. can be inspired. and can. But I think that woman has more of a capacity for self-awareness than probably most. Yeah, but notice, too, that she wasn't writing asking for anything. She wasn't even writing about what she had accomplished. I think she chapter. was confessing. Yeah, and, and, way, and it, it was, she heard Obama speaking about the Zimmerman trial. And because it, and it, and that incident that she had in Albany had happened a few years before. So she, she felt compelled to tell him that. Like, you know, I have this going on in me, and, and, this, I, and, yeah. I wanna get, and I'm trying to get rid of it. And I just want you to know that. That, to me, is amazing. Um, another story that, I, that really got me was the story of the Republican, conservative Republican guy who goes to Central America. Gee, that's a crazy story. That is a... <laughs> it goes that, on and on. Too. Well, that's just friggin' unbelievable. I know. 
Bill Oliver. Bill Oliver. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Bill, he's, he's, but, he's a whole chapter, isn't he? Yeah. But these are amazing human beings. Amazing human beings. Amazing human beings. And, well, I, you think it's too long a story. It, to well, I, well, it wouldn't give the broad stroke. Do a broad stroke. Bill Oliver, conservative Republican, especially regarding issues of immigration, just illegal immigration, bad you know, immigration, bad. It takes a, takes a, a class. He's a professor. He takes a class to El Salvador, meets a father whose uh, wife is cooking them all dinner in the village. The father sa says, hey, here are all my sons, and one is missing. His name is Kike. He's missing because he escaped the gang, MS-13. That were trying to recruit him. That were trying to recruit him. And, and he they didn't said join. He, he said he had to, they told him he had to kill Somebody a member of his family. Either that or join. Either that or join. And the father ends up sending him away, saying, get out of here. Get run. And so they get him out. And he, they, he, he was never, how old? Oh. Like about 18? No, no, younger, 16 or something. Okay, okay. The father never hears from him again. So he's telling Bill Oliver, this conservative professor, professor you know, about his son. And um, Bill Oliver is like, oh, my goodness, that's very dramatic. You know, and the son is gone, but he may be dead. And Bill says, in this way that you would say if you were a, any decent human being, well, if there's anything ever I can do. <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up coming back to the U.S. and saying, I'm going to find that kid. But he wasn't, the father didn't say find my, my kid. My father never said find that kid. But Bill Oliver sort of can't get this story out of his head mm -hmm. and sort of remembers offering to help and thinks, i got to find that kid. i got to help. I gotta help that man. I gotta help that family. I owe it to myself or to somebody. And so he starts looking. And he finds him. Needle in a haystack. He finds him. The rest of the story is beyond belief. It goes on from there. <laughs> it's incredible. Unbelievable. Um, but he wrote Obama. He wrote. He when wrote, did he write him? He wrote um, after he f after he found after Kike. he found Kike. Yeah, and and he was actually in a desperate moment because he, Kike was going to be deported. Yeah, and this guy who had hated illegal immigration was desperately trying to figure out a way. If he goes back to El Salvador, he'll he's be dead. killed, right. and and probably his whole family. Right. So what are we going to do, President? Help me. I I'm sorry I was against your policies in the past, but like <laughs> I'm on board now. <laughs> I'm on board. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. The so many stories. Ashley. Oh jeez. Okay. Well, it's too long to read. I guess it is unbelievable. That is to me the that that's probably the most chilling letter in the book. Ashley, do you want to read it? Oh, I want you to read it. This is a letter written, well, it's unclear here. Um, I think it's 2012. 2012. Dear Mr. President, my father was a United States Marine for 22 years before retiring as a Master Sergeant. As part of the infantry, he deployed on six occasions 
Each deployment, my father came back less and less like himself. He missed many moments of my life, birthdays, holidays, award ceremonies. He used to love to hunt, to fish, to spend time with my mother, little brother, and me. But after he retired, my father was forgotten. You see, when my dad retired, he no longer had the brotherhood of fellow Marines. No one thanked him for his service. No one called to check on his well-being. He was diagnosed with severe PTSD and was medically disabled. So he drank and drank. My father's alcoholism stole the man that I had known for 21 years of my life. He could easily spend $100 a night on alcohol. He would drink all night, come back at 6 a.m., sleep all day, and repeat the cycle. I'm a junior at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. My father never called me to ask how I was, how my classes were, or if I had a good day. Every day I would look in the mirror and see the remnants of him in my facial features. But the man that I resembled so much, the man who constituted half of me, wasn't one that I knew any longer. Christmas Eve was a rainy day in Jacksonville, North Carolina, Mr. President. I was taking a shower upstairs when I heard the first two shots. I knew it was him. As I jumped out of the shower and ran down the stairs in nothing but a towel, I could see my father pacing in the living room with a shotgun in his hand and tears in his eyes. He yelled at me, his little girl, Get the F out of my house! Get out! And in that moment I knew that I had two choices, to run and leave my little brother upstairs and my dad with a loaded weapon, or to stay. I chose the latter. You see, I chose to stay in that room and fight over that gun because I knew that my dad was still in there somewhere. He had to be. As I struggled with my father, he shot and shot. The small girl who grew up waving the American flag at her daddy's homecomings yelled, No! from the bottom of her gut. As glass shattered, the dogs barked, and in my peripheral vision, I saw my brother run out of the house. I didn't care if I died, Mr. President. I'm 21 years old, and I would sacrifice myself without a second thought to save the man who raised me from taking his own life. Because when his country turned their back on him, I was still there. The light had long gone from his eyes, but he's still my father. I am still his little girl. A little piece of me died that day. I will never be the same. This time of year is one of celebration with family and to be thankful for the blessings provided to us. Instead, I spent Christmas Day sweeping up glass and looking at my home riddled with bullet holes, like a war zone. I'm writing to ask for your help. Not for my family, Mr. President. My family died that night. I'm asking you to help the others, the little girls and boys who have yet to see their mothers and fathers' souls die away. They need help. Get them help. Don't forget about them. They need you, just like Sasha and Malia need you. They do, with hope. Ashley DeLeon. It's even hard to listen to that now. These young girls, I'm thinking of the other one I read, was another young girl, same age, <coughs> writing about their fathers being mm -hmm. unmanned. Mm. Sort of. What happens here with Ashley? Have you talked to her? Ashley, yes. She is amazing. She has, that young woman has so much strength. I am continually inspired by her 
she's doing she's doing great she just she just graduated um she just <laughs> she graduated and got married on the same day <laughs> oh god <laughs> um how's her dad he di- he ended up dying and um her she never talked to him again after this incident because she was afraid of him um, and uh, ended up seeing him on his deathbed. He had a he had a a motorcycle accident. It's oh, not that's clear right. if he was really a suicide. It's not clear. Yeah. Um, but she got yeah. she did get to see him, but he was not really there. And um, her grief is you know you feel it all over the page. And the fact that she's writing that letter, you hear that that same kind of cry it's it's about doing something for other people right she makes that clear it's not like my it, family's gone it's not like you did something you bums you know you ruined i mean all of that that you could say she's saying do something to help and he ends up as you read it later in the chapter using her story in a speech about suicide prevention in the military um and a policy actually yes well, and the woman um, also featured in this chapter, her name is Lacey Higley. She, she's the one who got that letter. She's the one in the mailroom who got that letter. Who and got the letter, right, and, and was she, just... She kept that letter pinned up to her desk the whole time she was there and changed her life entirely and devoted her life to... Now veterans. Mental health and veterans. veterans. Like, that is what she does now. It completely changed. Another young, you know, woman in the mailroom... Who just, just was so transformed by one letter. Why did the first uh, person who you um, fleshed out? Why was it a guy named Bobby Ingram? Because I think it was right. Uh-huh. Why Bobby Ingram? Bobby Ingram. You <laughs> must. You must have loved him. No. Yeah, it's really hard not to love Bobby. I love Bobby's letter especially. Um, He's he lives in Oxford, Mississippi. He he's such a character. Um he wrote to the president very early on, actually. Bobby wanted his letter to be the very first thing that President Obama got on his day one of office. Right. He wanted to like greet him. Um and it's a beautiful letter about the country falling apart as seen through the missing calluses on his hands. How he had had calluses and now they're smooth because he doesn't have work. And he misses them. And he that's misses what he his writes. hands. And that's what he writes about. So it's poetic. It's beautiful. It is quite poetic. Even though, I mean, he's just a, it, you wouldn't, look, to look at him, you wouldn't say there's a poet. No, and that's part of what's so wonderful about him and what I, w- what I end up finding out about him. You know, it's kind of like his mission in sending that letter is like, don't dismiss us regular folks out here who you don't know what we got going on. You know, I'm that guy in the in the distance hoisting two by fours up a, a ladder in 90 degree heat, but I'm also this guy, and this is the guy I want you to be aware of that there are many of us out here who have lots going on. <laughs> Do you know? It's not just the cliched Southern white boy who no who I'm wouldn't a like a black president and who wouldn't you know all these things he loved the fact that obama was coming in and he and he and he and he had a a life behind him that was so vital to his identity um his work and it had been 
taken because of the economy, yeah. Um, there are so many people who come to life. Uh, so does Barack Obama ever meet any of these people while he's president? Oh, sure, a lot. Yeah, so, so, so explain how that happens. Well, sometimes, um, I mean, sometimes he would read a letter and say, Let's take her out to lunch. <laughs> I mean, it could be that. It could yeah. be that. That. So what? There was a woman in Minnesota. A woman in Minnesota that. When I go to Minnesota, <laughs> let's. I want to go to lunch with her. She she writes a letter, and it's not. It's I have not it in that here. special. This is a regular letter about like um, her family and how they're getting by despite the, the uh, another economic hardship letter. But they're 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 trying to make it. But you know, like everything's against them. They're working so many jobs. They're doing everything right. But you know, it's well. Just in not that regard, she was sort of emblematic yes. of so many of the the letters. And he, he they end up. Um, she gets a. <laughs> she lots of people get letters back from him, right? Some in handwritten, yeah. some not. Um, and she instead gets a phone call from the White House. And she's like, "Hello." Yeah. <laughs> like, this is White House. Why? Like, what? And they said um, the president is coming to. He wants to know if you <laughs> can have lunch with him tomorrow or something <laughs> like this. And, and he, then he, he says to her the, at lunch, and would you introduce me at this thing I have to do tomorrow or something? Right. What? Yeah. So she rides in the motorcade with Valerie Jarrett on one side and her <laughs> president <laughs> the other. And her husband's like, what's going on? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, they, end up, they end up being pals. I mean, they corresponded uh, throughout. I mean, he had a lot of people like that that he ended, ended up just you know, keeping, keeping uh, in touch with. Mm, and, mm. and Man... There were many times when I, I spent the weekend reading this, and um, there were many times when I was in tears. I mean, how do you not? I mean, my God, which is why I think it's so unbelievable that this man with the weight of the world on his shoulders would still insist that he be given ten letters from we the people every night that he would read. What a remarkable, honorable, I know. serious and, you know, human being. And I mean, that, I think I've, some of my tears were just this sense of such loss. Yeah. Like that was something he committed to. And it wasn't like a schlocky thing where they, you know, did it for some PR, you know what I mean? Like it was a genuine... In the we I unpack a lot in the book about like kind of like where that decision even came from, and that level of commitment and why, and um, you would get it, you know, you get it, and that he he never wavered from it, and ended up doing it for one reason, but finding that he got so much from it, in the end, that it was it was a value to him. It's, he kept use, he used the word sustaining, that right. the, they sustained me. These letters sustained me. And, make and that's no, not why he did it, you know no, what I mean? No, and like make no mistake, it wasn't that he was fed letters that would say, hey, oh. Mr. President. Oh, no, they're brutal. Way to go, buddy. There's a lot of brutal, brutal letters in there. In the beginning, he would get envelopes filled with tea bags <laughs> from the tea partiers. I mean, it was brutal. Lots of them. And they gave him those. That's right. Fiona, Fiona said, you know, it's like it's got to be representative. So if you're getting, you know... You're an idiot, letters. You got to know them. what's happening. And he figured, he said he knew it was a divided country. He said, yeah, I figured maybe 50% of the letters might be 
negative. They weren't, I don't think. Yeah, but he would spend a lot of time on the negative letters. And he'd respond to a lot. A lot of the negative ones he responded to by hand and very thoughtfully because he was like, <laughs> it's that same thing where he wants to be understood. He wants he'd be like, you don't, you don't understand my policy. Like, That's I'm going to sit here and I'm going to explain it to you. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, dude, you know, Idaho. Uh, you're missing the point, so I am going to in my handwriting. <laughs> and do you think that he changed people's minds? I mean, some acknowledged that he turned them around on an issue. Oh yeah, plenty did. And he get there were some letters from people who didn't vote for him, who spent eight years hating him, who wrote and apologized. Especially towards the end. He towards got, he the got end, a lot of that. where they thought I had it wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which takes us that takes a great I mean wow. <laughs> but here's uh, the thing. I I don't think we d- just want to sit around and mourn what we had. I think that we need to recognize that we had this. We had this not long ago. This is not ancient history. This is just this is just few years back. Across the bend there. Um and this is what we should have again. Like this w- this needs to be this is why we vote. Right? This is what a president That's what it be. looks like. Yeah, this that's what, what it looks like. In case you forget that this is uh, what the office is, Yeah. this is what it is. And this should be our standard. Yeah. So that's what I feel like. You know, it's like, you know how Obama would always, people would, uh, in his speech, people would start booing and he'd say, don't boo, vote. Like they boo for some bad guy. He'd say, don't boo, vote. I feel like with this one, it's like, don't cry, vote. Right. You know, like, hard work, hard work. It's on us. Yeah, it's on us. us. Absolutely on us. And he's been very, he's quite a father. Yeah. He really was the, he played that role. A president has so many hats they have to wear, right? Uh, They're the commander in chief. They're the head of their political party. They're, they're like the king in, in, you know, the, the head of state. They are the authority. Mm Mm-hmm figure mm-hmm. which is why they have to go when there's a horrible tragedy and be seen um there's why the, we yeah why then we they're the comforter in chief the big daddy and he did that with such warmth and seriousness it sets a tone for mm-hmm. the country you live in this is the tone and i feel like we just didn't know it i mean we knew it well we all, we don't. Up, you never. There, how many songs have been written about how you don't know what yeah, you got till it's gone? I know. Yeah. Now there's a parking lot. It's true. Also, in this case in particular, I didn't know all this was going on all that time. What? Did, what do you mean? You that didn't he, know that all, all this correspondence between letter writers and the president, and all this kind of back and forth, and this whole team of people like this was like a little hidden. Gem oh, that you're saying none house. of us knew no. about this. I mean, thing. I mean, well, because explain to me what did other president prior to Barack Obama? Everybody he, has a diff, every president had a different sort of like relationship to the mail. I mean, you started historically like George Washington yeah. answered every letter he got personally because <laughs> he got like five, right, 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 a week or something. <laughs> yeah, something right. like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you'd go from there, right? And um, it takes off in. Um, FDR. FDR, when he does the fireside chats, he actually invites people, people to, to write in. To that write was in. a real change historically. Yeah. Because then people are like, oh, 
we'll, we could talk to them. And they started writing in. That's when things really took off. But you know what? I remember how when Abraham Lincoln was in the White House, a person could just walk, a citizen could walk in. Mm-hmm. That was your... An encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. President, I got... And, you know, instead of writing the letter. I mean, that, so presidents in certain times have been, I mean, accessible. And then we built... Yeah, it's a long time ago, that yeah. Lincoln. Yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> but also, here's the, I want to, also, this point is like, he's the first person who saved mail, you know, like, saw it as a value. As a historical record. Yeah. It so was all like, these letters are. Yeah. If you go to other presidents, he's like, the save the important stuff, the, the so-called important stuff. You know, and the heads of state and the fancy this and the fancy that. And they throw everything else out. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, it's a lot of this paper. Here. Yeah. But this was like, oh, no, no, no. This is the historical document of, of, this, of these eight years. These. And in fact, again, it shows that, that anyone who understands how history works does not throw away. It is treasure. Treasures. Yeah. These are historical treasures. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, other presidents, like, they said, um, well, th- that's the thing. There's so little data that exists because nobody paid attention to What's it called? Man? The office is called the Office, office of, of Pre- Presidential Correspondence. Right. The OPC. But, you know, no one, there was not a focus like it. Historians don't focus on, like, mail from, like, George and... Well, I think increasingly aren't historians doing that? Sure, They're not doing the great man way of history, but the... But understanding what used to happen in these old mailrooms is, is hard to get because there's not a lot of documentation until now. So so you have, um, uh, I guess I guess Reagan liked to read the kid mail. There's anecdotal evidence. He liked to come by to the mailroom and he liked to he liked show to me see some the, kid. The kid. They and wrote. they're adorable, you know. All the kid mails, fabulous. Um, and I guess Bush, um, he he wanted to get mail already answered but he wanted to see the mail and the answers so his staff would answer it and show him batches now and again so i mean like you know they they knew it was there yeah and and certain ones had different relationships with it but this was this this deliberate okay we're going to here's how we're going to do this yeah and there was one just tragic story about uh mail that would come in from people who were in jail. Oh, the inmate mail. Yeah. The inmate mail. I mean, you can imagine the cries for help that is. Um, And the the tradition had been that for some reason inmate mail and anything that came in from an inmate was shredded. Yeah. So this is a, this is a, yeah, we were talking about Fiona earlier, the, 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 the mail lady. Um, the inmate it was just a it was just a policy uh that when inmate mail came it, unless they had a complaint around you know they needed medical care or something like that um that mail never would go to the president that mail would just be discounted so that it would just go and it bothered fiona um as a as a beginning worker who was just reading mail she once got a letter oh man from an inmate who loved the president so much, he had made a mosaic of a portrait of the president's face that he made with candy wrappers, the colors of candy wrappers. And she said it was absolutely gorgeous. 
and she wondered, you know, she was young and just beginning, and like, what? Ooh, she wondered what to do with it and wanted to tack it up on her wall, but at that point she said, you weren't allowed to do stuff like that, and it never, it just, she just put it where you put it, and it always haunted her. So then you flash forward, and she's now the director, and she's got crops of interns coming in, and one of the interns says, why aren't we doing something with this inmate mail? What do you mean we the inmate, you know, the intern called her on it and said, why? That doesn't seem to fit with the whole. And Fiona's like, you know, it yeah. doesn't. You're right. You're right. And that has always bothered me. So Fiona starts sticking them in the 10 lad, and the, they call them the 10 lads, the 10 letters a day. She's, just, she's like, I wonder what would happen. If the president starts seeing what some of these inmates and are like, writing. What, what happened? She just did it. And stuff happened. And he started writing back to them. Yeah. And she's like, oh, well, this is now something we should change. That's how she changed the policy. Yeah. She just did it. Just and did that it. was like Fiona. <laughs> she has a lot of examples like that. Um, so there was a lot of inmate mail. That was a really interesting exchange um, between inmates and the president. And um, he ends up, of course, commuting sentences towards right. the end of his term. And one of the um, the defense attorney who her beloved case had always been this guy with two life sentences for a drug crime. Billy Ennis was his name. Right. And she worked her whole forever trying to get this guy uh, on appeal to, to be free. And it every appeal is denied. And then the president ends up commuting his sentence. And um, she writes to the president to say, to thank him. Thank you. No one ever. Yeah. I mean, and the president, you didn't you end up telling no, I thought you sort of updated the president. On oh, and on him, groups. yeah. About how Billy, because now that Billy was out of jail, finally. He was working. And he was working as a roofer, and he got reunited with his son, and got a dog, and I wanted to let the president, you know, let him know, hey, Billy's doing great. I also showed him the picture of Marge. Yeah. When, when I sat with him, I was giving him <laughs> sort of like updates on some of these folks. It was fun. He was interested. I mean, he was fascinated. So, Jean, this is the book. It's not out yet. When can they get it? September 18th. Really? So on the 18th? They can pre-order probably yeah. at any. Yeah, yeah. To Obama by Jean Marie Laskus. Here we got one email. Maybe I'll do this real fast. An expert once made the assessment that Obama's frequent visits to Walter Reed, although compassionate, made him somewhat ineffective less likely to send soldiers into battle. Now this? What was he thinking? <laughs> Perhaps reminding himself that his actions touched the lives of the citizens and would make him a better president? God forbid keep him, hum God forbid, keep him humble. Funny that the folks who long for the deification of the founders refuse to give Obama any recognition for his moral compass. Not perfection, just sense of what is right. By the way, I only voted for him once because of that loony Palin. But you see this sort of, we tend to categorize people, just stick them in two different bins. Mm. And, you know, if you read this in these letters, man, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there are, a great there's a great deal of appreciation for this president a great deal a great 
And I think, in fact, the current president has uh, only uh, made that more so. The contrast is... <laughs> She's... I mean, it's just beyond belief. It is beyond belief. Hey, I also saw that you thanked Kit in your... You, you thanked a lot of people, our, our, our friend Kit. Cause of what, course. Because you have this other... Uh, this one is... Uh, uh, what are what's the designation at Pitt? You're a uh, oh I'm a I'm a, I'm a distinguished professor at You're the a University of Pittsburgh. Distinguished professor. <laughs> yes, I, I always thought you were sort of distinguished. And um, and you have together with <coughs> Kit Ayers, I uh, who is the director of the Center for Creativity. We have put together this center called the Center for Creativity, and Kit has been in really keeping it. Growing, it, growing it, and um, while you're flitting around with presidents, yeah. Well, geez, no wonder you thank her. And you say you're off to London because there's a lot of interest in the book there. You're going to be doing interviews all over the place. We got the first one. You did. This is it. This is it. Thank you, Lynn. Wonderful stuff. Can thank we say you. that there's this other stuff going on with the book or not? Um. Well, there would be a podcast that's coming out where you'll get to hear a lot of the voices of the letter writers. There was also um, going to be a television series <laughs> based on Fiona and the the characters. And the, I mean, in that the mailroom. Mm -hmm. Is that already like a thing, or is it just they're working on it? I mean, and are they reputable people? Oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. You're saying this is the guy who did the Revenant. The production company, Anonymous Content. Oh, Anonymous Content. Jeez. And Fiona, I wonder how she'd feel about that. A little I embarrassed. Told Fiona. I haven't told Fiona oh, about God, the show Oh, God, tell yet. her. She'll freak out. Because <laughs> she's very this diffident. Is, this is enough for her right now. Yeah. I, I have to slow her in. I have to walk her through these things. Because she's not Let her get the book first. She's not into... Well, she's just certainly not, uh, you know... Publicity how? No, <laughs> no. As far as you can be. Well, Jean-Marie, this is just, you always do such wondrous stuff, and I'm so happy about this. Oh, well, thank you. To Obama. I cannot tell you how wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.